So here's an interesting question you might not have thought about before. How is a virus like a nanoparticle? On this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast, we've got an amazing interview with scientist M.G. Finn from Georgia Tech's Center for Pediatric Nanomedicine. I'm Miriam Krauss, and I recently had the chance to sit down with Dr. Finn and ask him that very interesting question. Whatever you think you know about viruses, get ready to broaden your horizons because there is a lot more to them than you might realize. I'm going to start recording. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. And uh, taking time to talk to us. So just to dive right in, um, well, I guess you'd introduce yourself first. <laughs> My name is M.G. Finn. I'm, uh, I'm at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I chair the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry, and I'm a member of the School of Biology, and I'm director of the Center for Pediatric Nanomedicine. Great. Um, so let's jump right in, and can you talk a little bit about viruses? So when I hear virus, I think like a cold or some kind of invasive thing that causes me to get sick. Mm -hmm. But that seems very different from the viruses you were talking about when I heard you speak the other day. Sure. Well, by some estimates, viruses are the second largest biomass on the planet, uh, and um, they are therefore everywhere. And of course, the vast, vast majority of them don't make you sick. Uh, what they are are parasitic entities, in essence, that um, exist to replicate genomic information. And so the reason some of them make you sick is they are able to get into your cells and uh, hijack this, your cellular machinery to produce more of themselves and in that process make your cells sick or die or, or whatever. But most viruses, of course, either infect cells that are not in our bodies or don't kill the cells that they infect. Um, and uh, they really are very important in the, in the development of evolutionary processes in, in our biosphere as well. They pass genomic information between organisms. So they are part of our ecosystem. Uh, from the laboratory, from our laboratory point of view and from the point of view of nanoscience, viruses are something else entirely. They are a, a construct, a class of constructs that are by definition nano in scale. They range from a size from approximately 15 nanometers, or some of the smallest, all the way up through thousands of nanometers. But most of them are somewhere between 20 nanometers and, and 150 nanometers in diameter. Many of them look like balls, like spheres, but in reality they're highly symmetric uh, platonic solids, like icosahedria, icosahedra, or related solids. Many of them use those kinds of high symmetry elements and stitch things together to make structures that look really wonderfully weird and complex. Many people listening will have seen the images of a bacteriophage that look like a docking station with, with a, a head and a cylinder and legs sticking out. And that's real. That's really the way, way, way these things are constructed. But in, in, at, at the essence, they are packages of protein, protein shells that exist to package genes and to transmit those genes from cell to cell where they can be replicated. So how does this play into laboratory work? If you're interested in nanoparticles, mm -hmm. um, defined in ways that I know you, you know a lot of different ways to do, um, these are nature's nanostructures. Um, and because there are so many of them, uncounted trillions and trillions of them, uh, they all have different um, chemical properties uh, in principle and in fact. So of course they have different sizes, they have different shapes, they have different um, uh, surface groups. Many of them are covered with a lipid bilayer in nature, but they all have a protein shell, which usually, if you study them and work with them, can be made by itself or can be isolated by itself. 
And so the protein surface have different properties for different viruses. They have different mutational space. They have different um, uh, tolerance for variation. They have different sensitivities to the environment. Many nanos, much of nanoscience exists to uh, construct entities that, that are responsive to the environment. We like nanostructures that fall apart at acidic pH or, uh, or, or uh, come together when they, uh, when they find something that binds to their surfaces. Viruses have all of these properties already built in. Um, and so some, in some cases, the challenge is to find the virus that is the most like what you want and then figure out if you can work with it um, and, uh, and, and, and employ it for your own ends. <clears throat> so as nanostructures, they are simply preformed, beautiful, uh, information-rich structures that scientists can use <clears throat> really quite easily now with uh, techniques of molecular biology and protein production that are quite standard in laboratories all over the world. Great. Wow. So. In the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, a lot of the work is looking at um, manufactured nanoparticles that are already in use and trying to understand what happens when they come into contact with the environment or with biological entities like cells. Mm -hmm. And we know that cells, cell membranes have these lipid bilayer you know, um, layers often on top and they can interact in different ways with these nanoparticles. So how, can you put into perspective a little bit how um, viruses as a sort of naturally occurring nanoparticle, how does that, I guess what's the thing that comes to mind most basically is what's the difference between this naturally occurring vi nanoscale virus and a manufactured nanoparticle? Right, so the, the safety concerns, the mm -hmm. environmental concerns are very different as you point out. So for manufactured nanoparticles where you're talking about ceramic materials or metal nanoparticles or for lack of a better word, I'll call artificial substances, their safety, toxicity, um, environmental concerns all reside or mostly reside in the fact that they are not natural materials and therefore their accumulation in the biosphere can have, can have deleterious consequences or not. Viruses, of course, are all around. Um, and so the concerns then become different. They are more based in biological responses to pathogens. So for example, exposure to viruses, um, if they're engineered or administered in higher doses than normal or reaching places in the body where they don't normally go, they can engender things like an allergic response or, an, uh, or a cytotoxic immune response. And that's not something you typically think about with a silica nanosphere, right? So very different concerns. Often when I say we work on viruses, I um, am met with skepticism or fear about viruses as a replicating um, pathogen. Mm -hmm. And in our particular work, we very rarely work with a, a virus that can replicate. We only work with the protein shell. Mm -hmm. It lacks the gene, it lacks all of the other mechanisms necessary for replication. So it, it is an inanimate object, um, but structurally and, and in properties closely mimics the properties of the natural particle. Um, and so when we use our particles for interacting with biology, we don't have to worry about replication, and we can take advantage of the immunogenicity or other properties that the viruses have. So the concerns are very different. Um, there are areas where they merge. Um, so viruses or virus-like particles, as we call them, or viral nanoparticles, or many different names, they have been 
um, derivatized or, or, or married to a lot of the other materials that normal nanoparticles are made of. Uh, as an example, viruses usually, um, when they are formed, they're very regular. They are what we call monodisperse, pretty much as monodisperse as is known for particles of this size. And we're talking now the you know, 50 to 500 nanometer size range. Viruses are extraordinarily monodisperse in their size. And if you want to make monodisperse artificial particles of silica or metal or whatever else, it's tempting to use a virus particle as a template on which to deposit or fill with this different material. And so there's lots of that stuff going on. And then the concerns all become the artificial material concerns, right? As well as the biological concerns. Um, but in general, and I don't want to over, I don't want to understate this. You know, we always have to pay attention to safety, and particularly long-term uh, biological, medical, and, and environmental concerns. But in general, uh, biological systems deal very, very well with certainly viral nanoparticles in terms of their accumulation, which they don't, and their clearance there are really very, very few instances in which there are known or suspected problems of these kinds. Um, so we, we regard this work as very safe. The regulatory agencies do as well, um, and uh, there's never been a concern um, uh, with these kinds of materials in, in the ways that we've described. Great. So, yes, yeah, so you've talked a couple, used that term immunogenicity a mm -hmm. couple times. Can you explain that a little more? Sure. So. Um, we as higher organisms and every higher organism on the planet can be infected by a virus, as we talked about. And those infections can be quite deleterious. So for all organisms who have evolved immune systems, and that means most higher organisms, um, there are built-in mechanisms for recognizing when a virus comes along. And how can that be done? It's because viruses have to be very efficient in the way they construct themselves. Remember, viruses are in a war with all other viruses for resources of the cell. And so if you're a very complex virus where you have to make 79 different things in order to package your genome, and you're in competition with a virus who needs to make only 50 things to package the genome, that virus is the simpler one is going to win. Um, the more complex ones only win when there's more functions that have to happen in order tra to transmit the genomic information and reproduce it. So the virus wars all drive viruses towards simplicity. And what that means is they tend to be made from small numbers of building blocks that are multiple copies of which are used to assemble the structure. That's why they're so regular. You make an icosahedron from a small number that assemble in multiple copies, 60, 180, 240 copies, all multiples of 60 for interesting reasons. Hmm. Um, so is that like a, a soccer ball? Yeah, exactly. That it's precisely, that is the soccer ball symmetry, right? And so since evolution drives them to pretty much that's a common feature, the immune system has evolved to recognize that feature. And so the immune system sees any nanoparticle that is composed of regular arrays of protein as being potentially a, a, a pathogen. Therefore, there are, all, there are many different parts of the immune system that very efficiently process materials like this and send them and alert the immune system and say, here's something that could be concerned about, um, and send them for, for uh, immunological monitoring and destruction if necessary. This is great for us because we can take a particle that is not uh, toxic, that, is, that doesn't reproduce, but if we make it look like something that is a pathogen, and we send it into the body, sometimes the body will mount an immune response 
that it's what's called cross-reactive that also is immune response to the natural pathogen. Thus, that it we hasn't necessarily recognized yet. Correct. Oh. Correct. This is a, a, a branch of the field of vaccinology of creating new vaccines, and it's been known. This has been you know worked on for fifty years or more. Um, but as we get better at producing different kinds of viral scaffolds, which another way we can call them, and derivatizing them, changing them to look like natural natural pathogens, we get better and better at making vaccines that way. Um, but there's the counter uh, problem, which is if you don't want a, a, an immune response to happen, so suppose I want to take a protein nanoparticle and fill it with a drug to go and kill a cancer cell, um, when I inject that particle, I don't want the immune system to see it, bind to it, clear it out before it gets to the target. And so it's always a two-headed, two sides of the, of the coin. I need to learn how to make the immune system see my particles better sometimes and how to make the immune system not see them other times. Mm -hmm. Great. So I was, we have a few minutes left. I was exactly going to transition and ask you about vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, so what's what's not ideal about the all the vaccines that we currently have there's tons of vaccines we're eradicating diseases it's great but it sounds like there are advances that need to be made and potential use here for sure i mean i would turn it around and say there are very few diseases for which we can vaccinate now mm -hmm. right um vaccine you know vaccines have been the single greatest uh human discovery f uh, that has changed human health in history um and we really don't have that many great vaccines so there are many, many diseases for which this is not known. Why? Um, sometimes, very often, the organism is really good at evading the immune system. Think about it. It has to do that on its own in order to infect a human being or an animal we care about. Um, and so it is a war. It's an evolutionary war. Uh, and so we, as scientists trying to develop new vaccines, have to take into account that the pathogen has already built in a number of mechanisms to avoid the uh, the immune system and and so it's just hard and this to is do. Where we start to get like antibacterial resistance and things. Correct. Well, that exactly. Right. So if we're trying to immunize against against um, uh, a bacterial infection, normally the the term antibacterial resistance refers to a drug rather that's administered vaccine. rather than right. a vaccine. But the same mechanisms apply in in many ways. And so when you make a vaccine, you have to make it against a part of the organism physically. You know the, the the bit of the organism that the vex, that the immune system has to see, which means attached to, that has to be a part of the organism that is hard to mutate, mm -hmm. that the organism can't change that easily. And that you've hit it exactly right. That's actually been one of the hardest things about some organisms like HIV, the HIV virus, or a number of uh, of viruses or bacteria in developing both drugs and and vaccines. Um, so the the field of vaccinology is in some sense undergone a slow revolution in a positive sense just because there has been so much more that's known about how the immune system works in the past 20 years. It's really been a, an amazing period for learning about immunology and that helps us learn how to design better vaccines or so we hope. So to put it overly simplistically, are we going to be using viruses to combat viruses? Absolutely. Uh, exactly right. And that's not simplistic at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, may I ask you about your name? I'm very <laughs> curious. I saw on your website that 
MG is your real it name? It is my real name. That's my name on my passport and you know my driver's license and everything else. It's it's a little weird. I I understand, uh, but um, that's that's what's on my documentation. Yeah. So like Harry S. Truman. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes didn't stand for anything in Truman's case. In my case, it's both letters. But that's my first name. I don't have a middle name. Cool. cool. Yeah. But I've named named my children regular names. So. <laughs> So, so what are you uh, what are you excited about coming up uh, with your work on nanoscale stuff? What well, it, it turns out that some of the stuff I'm most excited about involves evolution. Mm -hmm. So, viruses are great for these ways we've been talking about their structures and their regular nature and the way we can derivatize them and change them. But they're really, really exciting because of the way they the ways they evolve um, and mechanisms of viral evolution have been harnessed in the laboratory very famously and productively in techniques that are called things like phage display where that takes advantage of the mechanisms and, and, and the platforms in which viruses evolve. But when you think about evolution as a way of making new things and you're used to working with viruses, that's a natural combination. And so we're thinking about trying to harness mechanisms of viral evolution to make new enzymes, uh, to, 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 to do chemical reactions that can't be done efficiently, or maybe even to make new materials. Um, so we're, we're in the process of creating a different center at Georgia Tech on uh, using evolution as a functional engine to make new things, uh, taking lessons from biological evolution, but not studying biological evolution. That's another, that's different centers. Uh, we want to use it. In, in new and interesting ways. And so that's one of the things I'm hope, hopeful we'll, we'll be getting to go in the next few years. And it's all about nanoscience. It's really, you know, these, for evolution you need a lot of different functions to happen and that's nanoparticles are, 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 are what brings those functions together. Yeah, perfect. All right, well thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. This is great fun. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Finn's interview as much as I did. That's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast, where we talk about sustainability, nanotechnology, and life in science. Want more? In addition to the podcast, we've got a blog with over 175 posts at sustainable-nano.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and yes, even on Pinterest at Sustainable Nano. We'd love to hear your feedback. What do you think about the podcast so far? Drop us a line and let us know. Thanks again to Dr. Finn for taking time out of his crammed schedule while visiting the University of Minnesota to do this interview. Thanks also to the National Science Foundation, who support this podcast through their grant to the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. Here's our standard disclaimer, though. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology grant. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation or the participating institutions. Our music is by the composer Kesta, and we found it at freemusicarchive.org. You can go to sustainable-nano.com slash podcast for more information and references from this episode and to find our other episodes. You can also find us on iTunes, of course, and you can check out the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology website at susnano.wisc, as in Wisconsin, .edu. Join us next time for more from the Sustainable Nano Podcast. <laughs>